I'm Richard Hollingham. Welcome to the Planet Earth podcast from inside a giant silver donut, the Diamond Synchrotron in Oxfordshire. This machine is more than half a kilometre around, and according to the blurb, you could fit eight St Paul's cathedrals inside although no one's tried that yet. Don't worry, you've not stumbled upon a physics podcast by mistake. This place is used to study everything from the nature of matter to food and new medicines. Later, I'll be meeting scientists investigating earthworms and shellfish, both with practical benefits. With me is Trevor Raymond, physical sciences director here and our guide to Diamond. Now, before we talk about where we are, Trevor, what is a synchrotron? What does it do? The best way to think about a synchrotron is to think about what it produces. And what the synchrotron produces here at Diamond is light. Uh, Now, by light, I mean anything from infrared or heat through to X-rays, such as you might uh, find if you went to hospital and had an an X-ray on a broken bone. So what we produce is light and very specifically high-quality light. So it is intense and it is highly focused. And what can you use that for? Give me the range of things. I mentioned a couple. The range is absolutely bewildering. If you think about biology, then we look at things such as the structure of DNA. The ribosome, for example, is a a typical example of the use of synchrotrons for which the Nobel Prize was awarded this year. And then passing through to physical sciences, they go through to engineering, structure of cars, welds, bridges, then through to physics. So the physics that goes into the iPod that you have in your pocket, that that physics was understood by use of synchrotrons. Well, this is where it all starts. We're in a tunnel looking at what I suppose amounts to a a very large gun. It's it's an electron gun like you get in an old-fashioned television, a cathode ray TV which disappears along this tunnel. The, the barrel, I'm, I'm sticking with this gun analogy here, is just surrounded by wires. But th- this is a, just a large electron gun. It's very similar to the electron gun that you would find in a very old-fashioned television, the sort of things that you sent to the scrap heap. The question is, how do we go from electrons to light? And, well, the way that we do that is we take the electrons, we accelerate them to speeds close to the speed of light... And then we pass them through magnetic fields. And as they go through the magnetic field, they get bent first one way and then the other. And as they get bent through a curve, they give out light. So in a concrete corridor, walking along this, and if this was on, I hasten to say it's not on at the moment, we wouldn't be allowed in here if it was, if it was on. Walking down here, those electrons are getting faster and faster. Getting as faster they faster and faster. Now, being electrons, electrons are negatively charged and they repel each other. So when you, whilst you're accelerating them, the electrons are repelling each other and that means the beam of electrons is getting bigger. So as soon as we've accelerated them, what we have to do is you have to refocus them back down to a small size. So we've passed through an area where we're accelerating them. We're now passing through a period where we find some magnets and then we steer the electrons on their way. So you've fired them, you've focused them, then what? What we now do is we direct them out of this room into the next room, which we can see the outer edge of, which is a curved building, where we accelerate the electrons to the speed of the storage ring. So they've gone through an initial linear accelerator. They're now going to go into a room called the booster, where we boost their energy 
until they have sufficient energy to join the electrons going in the storage room. This is just a machine, really. The actual science is done, if you like, in these rooms off that, off that storage ring. They're called beam lines here. Yes, you're absolutely right. This is just the machine. It's an amazing piece of engineering. When a person comes to use diamond, they never see it. This room is locked up. It would be unsafe for us to be here. And the user is totally unaware of its presence uh, because all they're interested in is what they can do with the light that comes out from this machine. And that goes to what you call these beam lines. Yes, we call them beam lines, but in fact, the better way to think of them is as a series of laboratories. Each of these beam lines is in fact a laboratory for doing a particular piece of science. Well, Trevor, stay with me and let's head off to to one of these beam lines. Yes, let's do that. It says radiation controlled area on the door but it's not operating at the moment. And Mark Hodson is in here from the University of Reading. Now, you work on worms and soil that's contaminated with metals. Yeah, that's right. And how do you use a machine like this to look at that? Uh, Well, what we do is we use this machine to tell us, A, where the metals are in our samples, which particular bit of the soil or particular bit of the worm the metals are in. And then, once we know where the metals are, we can look in detail to find out what the chemical environment around those metals is so we can find out how the metals are held in the earthworm or the soil. I don't know how to begin to describe this room. It's, I mean, mad scientist lab uh, is the phrase that springs to mind. It's a a three-metre by five-metre quite high room with tubes, wires, metal boxes, computers, and then there's this pipe that comes in through the wall, and and that's the key to, to it, really. This is the end of the beam if you like that's right when the beam's actually switched on it's tapped off the ring and then it comes through this pipe all the way along down to that end over there so if we get up the steps here so really this is the the massive equipment in the middle of the room there's this uh, pipe coming down it's about what three centimeters across quite a, a narrow relatively narrow narrow pipe Yeah, and of course the beam itself is even more narrow than that. It's down to sort of microns, so less than the size of a pinhead. And that's one of the key features about this beam line, and the reason we do the science here that we do is we get a really narrow beam which allows us to look at things with a lot of high resolution. The the sample itself goes down here. You can see there's a sort of metal plate um, at an angle to the long pipe, and that's where the sample sits. The beam hits that sample and either goes straight through it or x-rays come off at an angle from the sample and we can monitor those and that gives us the information that we need to then interpret the samples and do our science. Now this machine isn't operating at the moment but you have some of the samples in a little Tupperware box here so let's open that up. These look like almost microscope slides you've got in here. They do look like traditional microscope slides. What I'm actually looking at here is a thin sheet of aluminium like it is it's about two centimeters by three centimeters and there's a hole cut in the middle of it and in that hole we've got some tried and tested sellotape and on that sellotape we've got a thin slice of an earthworm and you can see it there it's kind of white and slightly shrunk because it's been dried out but that's a thin section through an earthworm what can you see then by studying that with this machine well What we do with these particular samples is we look to see where metals accumulate in the earthworm and how they accumulate. So this particular earthworm was something called a Lumbricus rubellus. You find it in your garden. It's a normal earthworm. But the special thing about this one is it is able to live 
somehow. It's actually evolved so it can live in contaminated soils. And what we were interested in knowing is, when this earthworm lives in the contaminated soil, does it accumulate the metals into its body? And if it does, where are they? And how are the metals stored? How are they kept in the body so they're no longer toxic, so they're no longer poisoning the earthworm? So in some way the earthworm is encapsulating them? Yeah, precisely. And, and typically what happens is these things are encapsulated either by proteins or some particular compounds, things like metal phosphates. So what we would do is we'd, we've got this slice of this earthworm, we'd put it in the beam and we'd pop it there, in fact. Just, it would sit just like that at an angle to the beam. So actually in front of the beam, so the, the beam's going straight through it? Yeah, the beam hits the sample and what then happens is we move, using computers, we move the sample around and create a map. So the beam hits all the individual points um, of the sample and produces a map. And what that map tells us is where the metals are distributed around in earthworm. And what have you discovered so far? We've discovered all sorts of things. For these particular samples, we were looking at the lead and zinc held in these earthworms. And they're effectively held safe in the earthworm by reacting with phosphorus to form very insoluble um, lead and zinc phosphates. So the the earthworm essentially puts these metals into a little phosphate-rich compartment That keeps the metals safe. It means they're not toxic or poisonous to the earthworm anymore. And then the earthworm simply excretes those little bundles of detoxified metals. So the metals come out in the earthworm poo. And how can you use this information? Presumably you can apply it to contaminated areas, can you, that are are contaminated with with metal? Yeah, well, we've got um, various things we've done with these earthworms. One thing, of course, is just studying their evolution. We can see how the contamination is providing an evolutionary stress to see how earthworm species develop. Another idea that we're playing with um, is using these earthworms um, to help remediate soils. So one of the things that you find is that when earthworms are present at contaminated sites, they increase the mobility of the metals. The metals move around in the soil more readily. And there's a remediation technique called phytoremediation. That's growing plants in the soil, and the plants simply extract the metals into their tissues and pull it out of the soil. So one idea we have is we can take these metal-tolerant, these evolved earthworms that can cope with the metals, we can introduce them to metal-contaminated sites. They will help the metals become more available to plants to speed up the rate at which plants can pull metals out of the soil. So if you like, that's a sustainable green and natural method of remediating these sites. This is the Planet Earth podcast from the Diamond Synchrotron in Oxfordshire. And we're back out and on our way to see another experiment. And Trevor Raymond, are you surprised at the, the range of science that's carried out here? I'm not surprised, but I'm always astonished um, and delighted because whenever I walk around this uh, facility, when I walk around and visit the scientists, I'm overwhelmed by their ingenuity, their enthusiasm, and the just astonishing range of different science that they do. In the earth sciences, for example, anything, you know, earthworms are fascinating, but the next user could be somebody looking at planetary material, and the person after that could be looking at meteorites or looking at rocks that have been extracted um, from deep down in the earth. So the range is enormously fascinating. It's easy to get tied up in the fact that it's an enormous machine and get impressed by the machine rather than the science, isn't it, a bit? Yes, but only if you're a person who works at the facility. Anybody who works here as a user, as as that's the name that we give to our scientists, are focused on getting answers to their particular questions. And yes, we hope that they uh, have a sense of wonder at the machine, but we would prefer that they get really excited about the things they're learning.
We've reached the next experimental station, and in here is Stephen Thompson. And we're going to go into what says on the door, Beamline Hutch, in a very sense. big metal door, and that, that's where the experiment is. Indeed, this is a lead-lined door to protect us from the radiation because it's, it's really quite harmful and you wouldn't want to be exposed to it. OK, so let's go in. So there isn't any radiation today? No, it beams off today. We're in shutdown. OK, so we go in. Now, this is very different to what we were talking about and seeing with, with Mark Hodson. It looks almost like a, a giant vertical wedge of cheese or series of, of wedges of cheese. And this is a detector, and I, I guess at the, the, the heart of the wedges, the centre of, of this cheese, is where you're putting your samples. Indeed, this sample would sit right in the middle, and um, it's a precision diffractometer is, is its name. It's the uh, only one in the world of its kind. It's got three circles. We can rotate the sample and we can rotate our detector systems. We have two sorts of detector systems, a very high-resolution scanning system, and we have a fast position-sensitive detection system, which allows us to gather uh, changes in materials in, in very fast real-time, in the millisecond time scale. Now, you're looking at muscle shells, the, sh- the shells of, of muscles, and there are mysteries surrounding these. Yes, that's uh, what, at least one of the things we look at. But the interesting thing about muscle shells is these are creatures that evolved about 500-odd million years ago, and they've evolved a means of making a protective structure for themselves. It protects them from predation, from the environment, and it's very suited to their purposes. But what we don't understand fully is how the creature actually makes the shell and what determines the, the different parts of the structure of the shell. And you're putting samples of muscle shell within this detector and, and looking at the structure? Yes, we fire x-rays at an x-ray beam and the x-ray beam penetrates into the shell and is scattered by the atoms that make up the shell and that produces a pattern in real space and we sample that with our detectors. And from that pattern we could determine how the structure of the shell is made, where the atoms are positioning themselves within the shell. Now, other, other than interest of how these shells came to be formed, applications, if you like, of this, of studying these? Well, there are indeed. I mean, the engineering that goes into these shells by these creatures is really quite fantastic. They're laminate structures. They change from one crystal form to another. Their orientations vary. They have tremendous applications in biomedical engineering for replacing bone material, for example. Or if we can understand how they make these sort of strong structures, we could perhaps adapt it to larger structures like aeroplanes or whatever. It strikes me as amazing, just the scale of this place. You can walk round, it's really, what, half a kilometre if you, if you walked all the way round. You've got these enormous machines, and yet you're looking at tiny, tiny samples. Yes, indeed. It's, it's really quite spectacular. The fact that you can look in, and you can almost determine where atoms are sitting within a material, but you need all this technology to do it. Well, thank you, Stephen. The Planet Earth podcast wouldn't be complete without Tamara Jones, who's with me here at Diamond. And you're going to talk, Tamara, about a couple of the features on the Planet Earth online website. Yes, that's right. And the first one's from Peru. And most of us are aware that glaciers are retreating around the world. And in Peru, disappearing glaciers are actually causing major water shortages because people there rely on meltwater from Andean glaciers for drinking water and for crop irrigation. But recent research from University of Sussex scientists suggests that using ancient techniques could actually help solve the problem. Indigenous cultures realised that managing their water supplies was key to their survival. And the Inca, for example, they planted trees on terrace slopes to stabilise the soil and they also built irrigation channels to conserve water. 
But one of the problems today is that ancient terraces and irrigation systems in Peru have been completely left abandoned, while in some areas faster-growing, exotic and very thirsty trees like eucalyptus have been planted. The researchers say that replacing exotic plants with native plants and repairing terraces and irrigation channels could be one way to help ease these water shortages. And wind... Yes, well, this one's from the Arctic, and oceanographers from the University of East Anglia have discovered that high-speed winds off the coast of Greenland could affect the way that the heat moves around the world's oceans. Why? Well, Greenland is massive, it's mountainous, and its coastline is really steep, so winds just can't get over this huge mass. This means that Arctic winds get distorted and concentrated, leading to wind speeds of up to around 60 miles an hour around the coastline. This inevitably churns up the sea around Greenland, which affects an important part of ocean circulation. But until now, scientists just had no idea that Greenland winds had such a major influence on the climate. There's much more detail about exactly how this works on the Planet Earth Online website. Thanks, Tamara. You can also tweet us on Twitter or follow us on Facebook, where you'll find pictures of us at Diamond. If I'd known, I would have looked a bit smarter. This has been the Planet Earth podcast for the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Richard Hollingham from the Diamond Synchrotron in Oxfordshire. Thanks for listening.